other passages along the way. Why don't you pray with me as we approach God's word and seek God to speak to us through it. Lord, we thank you again for the way that you've already met with us as we fellowship together, as we've sung songs together, as we've um, postured our hearts and our minds and our bodies in worship before you, as we've heard about what you've been doing um, beyond just the borders of our little town and we already um, feel that you have met with us in a special way, Lord. And as, they, as we turn our attention and focus our, um, our hearts and our affections onto what you have said to us, Lord, I pray that you would minister continually to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, many people, I think, view the Scriptures, view their Bible, as an assortment of uh, moral teachings, maybe, or stern commands to obey, maybe dire warnings of things from which to abstain from. And then to that mixture, they then add a, probably a smattering of maybe what, what I often, often have felt like disconnected stories throughout the Bible, you know, stories about heroes and stories about villains, about prophets and priests. And then there's all those genealogies and add to that our own generalities that we sort of think about in the Bible. And then, of course, we throw in a couple of nice stories of Jesus. But the Bible is so much more than that. Um, There are numerous ways to probably frame it, but ultimately the Bible is actually one great story of redemption. It's it's where we follow a, a clear thread of God's grace poured out to his people. It runs from creation all the way to new creation. And it goes there via the cross. There's a uh, a quote that I want to read to you um, from a a guy by the name of Brian Chappell. And he says that Christ's grace does not wait until the last chapters of Matthew to make its first appearance. But rather, it is the dawning light increasing throughout Scripture toward the day the Saviour came. Jesus himself made this clear when he spoke to the religious leaders on his day, saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Now, the scriptures that Jesus was talking about were the Old Testament. After his resurrection, even, Jesus spoke similarly to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when you read about that in Luke... Jesus' conversation went a little bit like this. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus didn't just show up in the Gospels. Jesus has been there all along. That's the, the story of redemption that threads its way all the way through the scriptures. Look, unbeknownst to many of you, over the last nine years, I've actually been working through a series called Redemption's Story. It's taken us nine years to do it. You thought the Acts one was long, (laughs) all right? Or the, um, yeah, this one's been longer. Every, Every year we've been hitting on this for about a term, every year. 
Nine years ago, that series began with an overview of the book of Genesis, and its key characters and its movements. But more importantly, it started where all good stories begin, with God. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, you can read it in your Bibles, you have it open, open there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's how our Bible begins. It begins with God. And that's where we should begin when we come to the Scriptures. We, we should have in our hearts a sense of going, okay, I'm coming into God's Word. It must start with God, not whatever I've got in my heart. Not whatever I'm wanting it to be able to do or say or condone in my own life. But this is about God. It's always been about God. So over the last nine years, we've actually moved from the garden to Egypt. We've talked about slavery and redemption. We've gone from the conquest of the kingdom. We've gone from the kingdom back to conquest and slavery again. And we've seen the return of the remnant as they came out of slavery back into the land that God had promised. And we rejoiced at Emmanuel, God with us, the coming of the king. A few years ago, we, we followed the multiplication of the gospel-driven church as it spread out from Jerusalem and went back into all the world. And then finally, we anticipated the beginning of the end of all things as we looked to the Lamb who conquered, and we encouraged each other that in the end, Jesus wins, right? Nine years it's taken us, and now we're back to the beginning. That's why we've called this little series Back to the Beginning. I can promise you that while ever I have breath to proclaim the gospel, and while ever God grants me an opportunity to preach it from this pulpit, I will continue telling the story over and over and over and over again. And we will just keep coming back, maybe every eight to nine years, back to the beginning once again, and we will remind ourselves of God's grace. So here's what I want you to see in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. We're going to start this series over the next... Um, it's going to take us around about six weeks to do, but we're going to do it in little two-week blocks with a couple other little things mixed in. So over about the next nine weeks or so, we're going to overview and start moving through the book of Genesis, seeing the seedbed of the gospel. Uh, although we don't see the cross clearly, like we do on a hill outside Jerusalem, in the gospels, in Genesis, we can see the seedbed of it. We can see the beginnings of it. And that's what I'd like to point out to you as we start this today. Okay. I want you to, this is the first thing I want you to take note in the first three chapters of Genesis, at least. Very clearly, in the, in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, we see this. God is creator and king of his creation. God is creator and king of his creation. That's important. He's made everything well. And he's chosen humans to be his image bearers on the earth. They were created to live in glad relationship with their heavenly father. That's, that's how the story of grace, the story of redemption starts. Just follow with me. I'm going to just highlight a couple of verses as you go through. Do your best to keep up. Genesis chapter 1 verse 12. 
Some of these will seem familiar. Don't let them wash over you. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And what does it say then? And God saw that it was what? Good. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. Okay. Verse 17, verse 18. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God created the great sea creatures. This is verse 21. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's one of the most profound statements to start the story of redemption with. That God would say, let us, there's an indication to the triune nature of God, let us make man in whose image? Our image. After our likeness, he says. A little bit further it says, so God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. A little bit further it says, and God saw everything that he had made, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, it says, very good. God looked over the totality of all his creation, insects, Livestock, fish, birds, plants, mountains and valleys and rivers. And a man and a woman. He said, this is very good. Very good. And we, the offspring of humanity, were made in the likeness of God. This is the default position of mankind. Without the presence of sin, yes, I know, but this is our prototype existence. This is where we came from. This is is our, our parentage, unbroken and unashamed, naked before each other and before God, completely seen and completely loved. Isn't that what we often yearn for? Isn't that one of the driving forces of our humanity is to be completely seen and not rejected? And so often, most of our lives is about covering, right? We we don't want people to see because we think they will reject us if they really see us for who we are. And here we find humanity completely naked, both physically and spiritually and emotionally, before each other, before God, completely seen, completely known and completely loved. And spoiler alert, that day will come again. It's an image where we truly inhabit our world without inhibition at all. Where work was hard but joyful in the garden. 
where our bodies were not possessions or commodities to be bought and sold and leveraged against each other. This is a world where in an infinite way reflected the incalculable glory of its creator. He is the creator and he is king over his creation. It wouldn't stay that way for very long if you know the story of the opening chapters of of Genesis. And we know that sin has left a filthy stain on humanity and on this world and things are now distorted because of it. Things are now broken because of it. Things that were once whole are no longer. Things that were once beautiful are no longer. And if you have eyes to see it, even though all of that is true, the image of the Creator is still stamped on everything that He has made. Every infant born, every child who stumbles on their feet, every teenager exploring their path, every man who carries a load, every woman who cries hidden tears, every hunched pensioner who sits lonely with aching memories maybe, every single one of them, every human, despite the color of their skin or the education that they've received or even the gods that they have bowed to, every single one of them carry within them the unmistakable mark of their maker. We are made in the image of God. We are made in His likeness. We are image bearers. You are an image bearer. And even our world, as groaning in turmoil as she is, it remains an image bearer of its creator. When Jesus was rebuked, do you remember the time when he's riding his donkey into the gates of Jerusalem and his followers and those that were crowding there were waving palm branches and throwing them down and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Remember that? The religious leaders rebuked Jesus and they said, stop your followers from calling out that. What did Jesus say to them? He said, even if these people were to be quiet, what would happen? The stones themselves would cry out. Creation knows its king. The psalmist would say in Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Stones will call out. Stars will call out. The skies above proclaim they know their king. So let me be clear about at least a couple of implications that we should consider about this. First is this. We should care deeply for the things that reflect the image of our creator and king. I'm not advocating you go and join the Greens party. But I am saying you should care deeply and rejoice in God's handiwork in creation. It should matter to us. I'm not a gardener. I don't pretend to be. But God's creation matters. And one of the first mandates that we as mankind carried was to be its caretaker. A shepherd to this world. To steward the gifts that God has given to us. 
That's the first thing we should care about. Secondly, that if we relegate or dismiss any image bearer as inferior to another, is not only a deep injustice to that particular person, but to do that is a direct attack on the one whose image they bear. When I take an image bearer of God, another person on this planet, and I relegate them as inferior in some way, it is an abuse to them and it is a slap in the face to God. To say, your image in that person doesn't matter. To say that a child is inferior, to say that an unborn child doesn't matter. To say that a a man doesn't matter because of the colour of his skin or the country that he came from. To say that a woman is less than. To think that a Muslim or a Hindu or a pagan is inferior and of lesser value simply because they bow to a foreign god denies the fact that they are still made and created bearing the image of our maker. And when we relegate them as second rate and less than and less important than, we slap God in the face and we say, your maker doesn't matter. People can be wrong. People can be confused. People can even be rebellious. But they are not less than. They are not irrelevant. They are not worth less than you or I. And we must treat each image bearer with the dignity and honor they deserve. That's one of the lessons from Genesis 1. A third one is this. For those of you, and for the times I have, who look in the mirror and can only see the scars of sin, some inflicted by your own, many inflicted by the sins of others, my prayer is that this morning that you would hear God's voice to you. You are an image bearer of the king. You are an image bearer of an infinite God. You are an image bearer of the God of light and wonder. And when God so loved the world, you were included in that. Don't buy into Satan's lies. You carry more of your true father's likeness than you know. You are precious and you are are worth more than you realize and you are loved. That's what it means to wear the maker's mark, to, to carry the image of the creator. But sin is robbed and destroyed. That's the second thing we need to acknowledge from the opening three chapters of Genesis, sin has robbed and destroyed. Sin has entered the world and it took away human freedom through the consequences and the dominion of evil. Sin, alienation and death now mark human existence. And we can't sidetrack it. It doesn't matter how advanced our medical world becomes. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable our scientists become. It doesn't matter what new breakthroughs 
drugs and medication are having. Ultimately, sin, alienation and death still reign. Then the Lord God said, this is in chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Go down to verse 25 in chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's important. Go down a bit further. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. A little bit further down. Keep reading. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, This is where it comes from, folks. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. I couldn't help it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, you shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I'm, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's the cataclysmic moment in human history where everything changed. And it began with, did God actually say? It has always been Satan's number one strategy to get you to doubt what God said. It's the birthplace of sin. Did God really say this? Really? I mean, it's how we tempted Jesus in the, in the wilderness, right? Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. He distorted it. He twisted it. He misquoted it. All the while saying, did God really say this? Even as this chapter is the seedbed of the gospel, we cannot understand how astoundingly brilliant the good news is unless we grasp just how deplorable and terrible the bad news is. Look for a moment at the effect of rebellion and you will see that it is short-sighted of us to think that sin is simply wrong behavior. Listen, we are sinners not because we do sinful things. Instead, we do sinful things because we are sinners. That's our nature. That's, that's the effect of the curse that God laid down on mankind. We are sinners. Sin is first a state of being before it is a state of doing. We are sinners, not just people who do sinful things. If we think of ourselves as people who do sinful things, then we can become holy by just doing less sinful things, right? But we will never get there. Our hearts are distorted and broken. Broken by sin. Look, I know it has become trendy to leave behind the terminology of sin. Replaced instead with terms like brokenness, like distorted. But those terms are only helpful in as far as they describe the result of sin. Sin distorts. Sin breaks. The problem with saying we are broken people is that it places us into a very sort of passive position. Oh, I'm broken. It's like when you ask your kids and you see a cup smashed all over the floor. How did that happen? I don't know. It's broken. It just happened. It's broken. And we can do the same thing in our life. We see the the brokenness, we see the effects of sin in our life, and it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm broken. And we are, but you know why we're broken? Because we're sinners. Because sin reigns and rules over this world. Brokenness is something that happened to me rather than something that I was actively involved in. We must own our sin. We must take responsibility for our rebellion against a holy God. You saw it in the text, didn't you? God comes in. Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to? The woman. You Don't come talking to me, God. I'm broken. All right? It's the woman. 
Did you, you hear the passive aggressiveness in Adam's voice as well? It's the woman whom you gave me. Not only is it Eve's fault, God, it's actually slightly your fault that I did this. You gave her to me. Look what she did. If you didn't give her to me, this would never have happened. All right? Adam straight away shifting blame and responsibility away from himself and saying, it is actually Eve's fault. God, you might be a little bit complicit in this as well. God lets that one slide. He says, Eve, what have you done? It was the serpent's fault, right? We've always been people who are looking now to shift blame. Is it sin? No, I'm just broken. I'm just like this. I can't help it. No, I'm a sinner. It's why in the New Testament, when people talk about salvation, they say, what must I do to be saved? One of the first things they say is repent. You know what repentance is? Taking ownership for sin. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That's what needed to happen in the garden and no one did it. It's what needs to happen now. What's wrong with this world? Me. I'm wrong. What's wrong with this world? That's repentance. That's taking ownership. Sin is a blindness to God's glory. A refusal to submit to his reign as king. Sin is a mutiny against his authority. And that rebellion has drastic consequences. The book of Romans chapter 1, very famous opening chapter in there. You can turn it if you want. I'll just read it to you. Romans chapter 1 from verses 18 onwards says this. Paul writing says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we're out. We are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There are immense consequences to sin. I want you to note just a couple of things. Note that before the fall, man and woman existed naked before each other without shame. Yet the moment the rebellion unfolded, shame formed a wall between them. Humanity's relationships with each other was fractured that day. Not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other. We're now marked by shame. Now marked by a continual drive to hide from each other. Insecurity has led to a distortion of how we honor the image of God in our bodies. 
nakedness as a gift from God was soon replaced with a, a sense of power to leverage other people. Nakedness became a commodity to buy and sell. Nakedness was relegated as a celebration of the flesh, now to just simply be traded for something for our pleasure. And with sin came a continual drive to distance ourselves from responsibility and shift blame towards anyone else but ourselves, right? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. But we must break that cycle by simply putting our hand and saying, no, I am to blame. It's my sin, God. Normal gifts that were given to us before sin entered the world under the curse became a means of pain and frustration. Have you ever thought while you're at work maybe and you hate the day at work and everything's going wrong and you think, oh man, in the... I wish it was like it was in the garden or, or maybe one day when Jesus comes, I won't have work. Do you know that work existed before sin? Adam and Eve were given work. Work is a gift from God. Frustration in work wasn't. Childbirth is a gift from God. Pain in childbirth wasn't. God says, listen, you're going to continue to eat, but now the more you strive and and work the, the, the land, it's going to produce thistles and thorns, and you're going to have to eat by the sweat of your brow. Work becomes tiresome and frustrating because of sin. But all of those things existed before sin. And sin twisted normal and good gifts. Relationships aren't a result of the sin, but the imbalance of power and abuse is. And ultimately, the curse of sin brought decay and it brought death. An unraveling of the perfection of the garden. A gradual but continual decline from the heights of God's good purposes for us. And we live in this perpetual state of separation from our maker, which really is death. But here's the seed of the gospel, and this is where I want you to finish on this morning. I want you to know that the serpent will not always have dominion. Bite as he may, his head will one day be crushed forever. Death came as a result of the curse, but by death, the curse was overcome. This is the good news of the gospel, right? Though it's seen in all its unveiled glory on Gethsemane and three crosses, you can see it here in the opening chapters of Genesis, at the dawn of human history. We can see like little gospel shoots pushing up through the new earth almost. Let me remind you of something that God said. We've read it already. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or in Genesis 3, 20 and 21, the man's wife, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Already we can see that the promise 
that one day an offspring of Adam would come. He would be a second Adam, a better Adam. And he will live in complete obedience to his father. And though the serpent strikes at him and even draws blood from him, the serpent would be thrown down and his power would be overthrown. His poison will be nullified, his death destroyed. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everything, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. There's the curse. But Galatians 3, 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Colossians chapter 2 says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespass by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Even in the garden, God was pointing Adam and Eve forward to saying, listen, it's all ruined now, but one day, one day, the serpent will be overthrown. One day, this will be made right. One day, All the power of the curse will be done up and tied up and nailed to the cross and it will be destroyed. That one day there would be a redeemer. Do you notice that just before Adam and Eve are rejected from the garden, God, in his grace, removes their pathetic attempts to cover their own shame. Do you see what happened? They sinned and they became aware of their nakedness, right? The first thing they tried to do was cover it. And they they covered it whichever way they could, right? Let's grab some leaves. Adam says, I've never sown before, but I'll give this a shot. Right? We'll just eyeball it. Don't be a bit wonky. Um, And they, they did their best, right? And haven't we been doing that as humanity ever since? Our sin... We, we try to cover it, and we just do it the best way that we think we can. We'll just give it a shot. We'll just cover this shame up. We'll just cover this nakedness up before God. And we have been doing that ever since. And yet, look at God's grace. Just before he ejects Adam and Eve from the garden, he takes their futile and pathetic attempts to cover their own sin, their own nakedness, and their own shame, and he clothes them. He clothes them. And what did he clothe them with? Did you notice? Skins. What skins would they have been? An animal. Death entered the world, right? Death entered the world. And it took someone's death to cover Adam and Eve's sin. It took someone's death, a sacrificial death, to give them skin to be covered in. Already we're seeing pictures and images of the gospel. Isaiah 61, Isaiah prophesies and he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. In Christ, our sin has been finally covered. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Our sin, our shame, our nakedness can only be covered by a sacrifice. Hebrews goes on to say, if you want to make it the sacrifice of animals, you'll be doing it every year. Every year you'll have to come back, sacrifice animals. Their sin will be a covering for yours, but it doesn't last. Instead, we look to Jesus, right? The great high priest, the eternal one who entered once and for all, who gave his life as a sacrifice for mine and for yours, and by his sacrifice, by his blood, I'm now covered. You're now covered. Our fig leaves are thrown away, and we are given full, eternal, complete redemption. This is the great exchange. In the cross, Christ took our sin as though it was his own and gave us his righteousness as if it were our own. That's what happens at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a miracle. So here's my conclusion as we finish. Right from the opening chapters of Genesis, we can see three things. One, God is creator and king of his creation. We're made in his image, made for perfection, made for relationship with him, and then sin destroys and corrupts and distorts. Sin brings death and separation. And in it, we try to cover our nakedness and our shame with our own efforts. And yet we see, even in Genesis, a God who is saying, that will never do. And so I will provide a way forward. I will provide a covering for your sin. I will provide one who will come, who will crush the serpent's head and take his bite on himself. And so my... My simple question for you this morning is this. Have you owned your sin? We're all sinners. All of us. Have you owned it? Have you simply said before God with no excuses, no reasons why, no he made me do this or if it wasn't for her, that wouldn't have happened. It was simply a sense of have you before God simply put up your hand and said it was me all along. I'm a sinner, and I need a rescuer. If you haven't, I want you to see a God who has extended right from the the very birthplace of humanity a way forward, a path for the gospel, for the good news. And I want you to see Jesus, the one who came, a better Adam, a second Adam, one who came in obedience to the Father and was able to say, I am. Take your sin on myself and I give you my righteousness. So own your sin. And then own your saviour. Acknowledge him. See him. Thank him. Embrace him. 
If you've never done that, then why not today? I'm going to stay at the front here once the music's finished. If you'd like to come and talk to me about that, I'm available. If there's someone here that you know that you would come to church with and you feel comfortable talking, go and talk with them. They would love to share with you more about the good news of Jesus Christ. But don't go home today without thinking through that. Do you know a saviour? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the story of the birthplace of humanity, but it's not just the birthplace of our story, it's your story. And you've invited us into it. And right from the outset, you have been pointing a way forward. There is good news. There is a saviour. Satan will be overcome. Sin will no longer reign. And we can find hope and faith and trust in you. Lord, open our eyes to see it and our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.